I'm James Milley. And I'm Alex Mito. And this is The Artist Business Plan, your favorite weekly business podcast for artist entrepreneurs, hosted by Superfine Art Fair. What's going on, business artists? You are listening to The Artist Business Plan, which means that you are certifiably awesome. If you don't know me by now, my name is Alex Mito. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Superfine Art Fair. We're the most widespread art fair for artists in the U.S., and we're one of the top resources for all things art, artists, and marketing of your art. I'm also one of our two hosts here on the Artist Business Plan, along with James Milley, which now reaches over 7,000 monthly listeners in 100 countries around the globe, and we're growing every single week thanks to listeners like you. Today, we have Dame Julia Payton-Jones here with us, which is an incredible honor. Julia is going to share an awesome class with you about her extensive experience in the art world. I don't know about all of you, but I am so excited to hear what Julia has to tell us. But first, I've got an amazing offer here just for you ABP listeners. Artists, have you ever felt anxious, alone, and not sure about the next move for your career? Good news, those days are over. For nearly six years, we've taken thousands of hours to develop the best art fair model for artists out there. Superfine art fairs have helped hundreds of artists just like you take control of their careers, build relationships with collectors, and create the art income and freedom that you deserve. For a limited time, we are offering you the chance to not only get a great discount on your booth, but also appear on this very podcast as a special guest reaching thousands of artists, art influencers, collectors, and arts professionals every day. To find out how you can take advantage of this incredible opportunity, just visit www.superfine.world offer to learn more. We can't wait to welcome you to the Superfine community and start helping you sell more art today. All right, so we are back here with Julia and we're ready to change the way that you think about the art world and your art career. Julia Payton-Jones is a British curator and gallery director. She's currently the senior global director at Gallery Tadeus Ropak in London, Paris, and Salzburg. She was formerly the director of the Serpentine Galleries in London. Obtaining an MA from the Painting School of the Royal College of Art, she worked as a practicing artist and lectured in fine art at Edinburgh College of Art. Appointed Dame Commander of the Order of the British Empire in 2016, she serves on boards including the Courtauld Institute of Art, and is an advisor to the Naomi Milgram Foundation. She's MA and honoris causa of the University of Creative Arts, Senior Fellow of the Royal College of Art, Honorary Fellow of the Royal Institute of British Architects, RIBA, and the Zoological Society. Welcome to the Artist Business Plan, Julia. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for inviting me to join you. Ah, you're welcome. It's our pleasure. Glad to have you here. So before we dive into our questions, I, I want to ask you something that we ask all of our all of our guests to help our listeners get to know the real you. And the question is, what is the earliest memory that you have of art? Well, that's such a good question. I think, I think probably um, my, my father used to say that he was going to take me and my sister to the Tate Gallery. Obviously, at that point, there wasn't Tate Britain and Tate Modern. There was only Tate Britain, so it was just the Tate Gallery. And um, it was really going to take and seeing that, that amazing collection of Victorian paintings. I think that's the thing that I remember most, as well as probably things that were hung on my bedroom wall, which were illustrations of Victorian dress. Uh, they had this amazing 
They had a white frame, which I think probably at that time was quite unusual, white painted frame, and pink and white, very broad stripes, what the French call passe-partout, which is really a match. And there was a combination of the white frame, the pink and white, wide stripe, um, mount, and then these, these hand-drawn and hand-colored, um, illustrations that I, I, I found very, very compelling. That's an amazing story. Thank you for sharing. I mean, it's, I find it always kind of inspiring when someone's first memory is, you know, a parent taking them to a museum and then, you know, kind of absorbing the art there and also just the art that's in our own homes when we're growing up. And I always like to kind of parlay this question into one of, you know, if you're a parent, if you're, you know, even if you're not a parent, you just have children in your life some way to make sure that you're exposing them to art and taking them to galleries, museums, and also have art in your home because it makes an impression at such an early age. So I'm very grateful, grateful to you for sharing that. Thank you, Julia. Uh, so Julia, you're regarded as one of the most influential people in the art world, but there was a time when you were just starting out. So when you were starting out in the art world, what kind of opportunities were there for mentorship? And you know, did you take advantage of those? And how did that shape your experience? Well, when I was starting out in the art world, there were no, the, the idea of a mentor really didn't exist at all. I think what what existed was people that you uh, that you admired, and so for me, I had two two people who were like my art world parents. One was Joanna Drew, who was head of art at the Arts Council of Great Britain as it was then, and the Arts Council uh, was is the equivalent, the English equivalent of the NEA, and they were incredibly important because. There was no commercial, um, no commercial art world to speak of. I, I was talking to a friend about it the other day, and we identified six commercial galleries in London. Can you imagine? And that was it. Wow. And they didn't sell anything. So it wasn't. It wasn't only that there were so few, but also they really that the sale of works of art was extremely rare. I mean, and so it, the principal. Um, vehicle for both funding of artists, funding of institutions, and also presenting the, um, the work, both at the Hayward Gallery on the South Bank Centre and also the Serpentine Gallery where I worked most recently before I came to today's Ropac, um, was the Arts Council. And I went to work um, having left the Royal College, having taught at Edinburgh Art College, having been a practicing artist and then going to the Arts Council initially as a freelancer. Um, and then I had a job as a curator at the Serpentine, uh, sorry, at the Haywood before the word curator was ever used. So people were called exhibition organizers and the word exhibition organizers was considered to be a very noble profession and curator came in much later. Now, of course, everybody's a curator now. People mm-hmm. curate menus, restaurants, they curate fashion <laughs> collections. They curate everything. But at the time, it just didn't exist at all. And so my mentors were my art world parents, both of whom, in effect, employed me. Joanna Drew, who ran the Arts Council, the 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 Visual Arts Department of the Arts Council, which was this incredibly 
influential a group of people. And under her direction, you know, Nixa wrote a work for her, many, many people that we, we you know, British, all British, um, people that went on to do extraordinary things. And I admired her hugely because at that time in the 80s, the late 80s, there weren't women who were running things in the arts. You know, it was very male-dominated. It was a very, very small um, sort of niche group of people. There was no sense really of a public for, for contemporary art. And she, she was this incredibly important position and also somebody who was extremely rigorous, had extraordinary values, somebody I liked very much, somebody I admired very much. And then one of her closest friends and advisors was a great writer and curator and critic, David Sylvester, who did the early Bacon interviews um, in the 60s, who was very, very renowned. Um, and I worked with him on a number of exhibitions, including Jasper Johns, uh, Andy Warhol, and many others. And so those two people I looked up to hugely and admired greatly, and they formed mentors. But the idea that you could go to somebody and ask for, for advice about your career was just, it just didn't, it just didn't happen. But I, I, I remain incredibly grateful to them both because they, they instead, I mean, I laugh because, you know, I can see some of my younger colleagues patiently and they're rolling their eyes as I say, no, 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 must do it like this. And, um, and, you know, I, when I was working with David, um, you know, we'd be working until one or two in the morning, which was very usual then. Um, and he would say at two o'clock in the morning, right, let's just go through it one more time. Now I don't, I don't, um, my dear colleagues don't have to work with me till two o'clock in the morning, but that sense of rigor and precision and the importance, the real importance of being precise and, and clear um, very much came from them both. I love that. So, you know, you came up in the industry when, you know, there were six commercial galleries in London, which is a mind-blowing number. I mean, you pick any small city in America, Minneapolis, whatever, and there's going to be double or triple that today. And it's just amazing to think of a big city like London with almost no commercial art world. And, you know, like you mentioned, like, you know, it wasn't that you could walk in and, and find a mentor somewhere, like advertise for it or whatever, but you so quickly drew these two people from your memory that help form your experience. I mean, do you find your, that like, you know, do you, you're very grateful to them. Do you find it was very formative to have worked with them over that time? Oh, hugely. Because, you know, Gilbert and George always talk to the, about themselves as being baby artists. <laughs> I was a baby, I, because the, curate, the word curator wasn't used, I was a baby exhibition organizer. And I remember very, very well, David Sylvester ringing me up one day and he used to speak with very, very long pauses. And if you knew him, you kind of thought, oh, well, that's part of David. So you, 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 you kind of, you know, just accepted it. But, you know, very, very long drawn up pauses and he would say, Julia, you know, you call yourself. <laughs> long, long, long pause. An exhibition organiser. I'm the exhibition organiser. And so for him... You know, there he was. He was he was really saying, "You are stepping into my territory," and um, I think I think it's always really fascinating to to be in close proximity with anybody 
in any field whatsoever who does their job really well. It doesn't matter if it's, it doesn't matter who it is. It doesn't matter whether it's a cook, somebody who's, you know, a road sweeper or somebody who's a curator or somebody who's a museum director or any other of the myriad of professions that, you know, make our daily lives possible. Um, it's always really, really fascinating because you can learn hugely from them. And I learned hugely from Joanna and David. And um, that's why I call them my art world parents because they really were. You know, they gave me a clip around the ear if I, <laughs> if I didn't, you know, do what I was supposed to do or if I did something, got it wrong. But I very much felt that I was a student, a very young student and learning. And learning, of course, is tremendously exciting <clears throat> because if you're diligent, then your sense of expertise improves and, um, and you progress professionally, um, which, which I did. And so I, I'm hugely grateful to them for those opportunities. That's wonderful. And I just want to pull out one sentence that you just said and kind of underscore it for our listeners. And it's, it's great to be in proximity to someone who does their job really well. And I could not agree with you more. And, you know, sometimes, you know, this may seem like chance or luck, I don't know, but, you know, to our listeners, but really you can, even if there's not an organized system of mentorship or whatnot, you can find those people. And many times you can reach out to them and position yourself in a way that you can be in proximity with them. And, and it really, you know, a lot of our listeners are artists. So this may be another artist who's doing something especially well, either their art practice or the way that they're marketing their art or whatever it may be. But, you know, even if you have a hobby or passion, whether it's, you know, cooking for me, it is cooking. I love watching someone who does that extremely well. And I really do feel that you absorb it as you watch their process. So I, I think that's an amazing piece to pull out if someone's asking, well, how do I meet this particular person or this thing? I mean, you know, just positioning yourself in a way that you can be in proximity of someone who just does whatever they do extremely well. I just agree with you that that can be so beneficial to someone who's learning and growing. I also think that, I mean, people, people are very generous and, you know, I, I sometimes am contacted by people who who want to ask me a question or they're seeking advice. And I think if you're lucky enough, if one is lucky enough to get to a certain point in one's career, then it's always a, a kind of responsibility to get to give back. So contacting somebody you admire and asking for their advice, help, guidance is, is absolutely fine. The worst thing that can happen is that they'll say no, yep. in which case you go on to plan B. But <laughs> if you're persistent, I mean, Life is so much about persistence in any case. And if you're persistent, you'll find, you'll find the answer to your question. If you're, persist if you're persistent, you'll find the answer to your question. I love that. It's like the rule of showbiz. Whoever asks three times is part. <laughs> yes. Cool. So I'm going to move on a little bit um, to my next question, which is about you know, collecting. And, you know, you're obviously an impressive curator or exhibition organizer and gallerist, but from what I understand, you don't, you don't identify as a collector. And I, apparently you spoke about this in another podcast, but you've spoken about there being a collector gene. And at Superfine, we really love bringing unlikely art collectors together with their collection starting pieces, the first pieces that maybe they purchase of living contemporary artists. 
But you spend a lot of time with collectors. So are there traits that you notice that collectors have in common? I mean, what, what do you see that makes someone a collector? Well, it's the desire for ownership. I mean, that's, the, that's really, for me, the definition of a collector. I don't need to own a work of art to appreciate it. And I'm not saying that collectors can't appreciate a work of art if they don't own it. But that, that whole idea of ownership is key to collecting. And I just don't have that. I just <laughs> And also because my taste changes and right. what I might be passionate about this month, you know, my interests may move on in six months. It's not to say, you know, there are some artists, I was just looking at beautiful, beautiful Cy Twombly drawing. Um, I work very closely with Alvaro Barrington, who's an artist we represent. And a friend of his had sent um, a be- an, ex- an image of a beautiful Cy Twombly drawing. And I've got on my desk a wonderful um, card of a, a drawing by Cy Twombly. And we were just ruminating about Cy Twombly. You know, he is, for me, a master, a god. You know, I absolutely love his work. But there are many other artists that I love. If I could, if I could own a Cy Twombly, oh, are you kidding? I would love to. <laughs> but I think um, I, I feel... I just don't have that gene of ownership. And so when I was at the certain time, I felt that I, inverted commas, owned every show, the work in every show, for the period it was on exhibition. And then it went away again. And the good thing was that I could then own, in inverted commas, the work of the next exhibition and so on. And so maybe I'm too practical thinking, you know, about the... You know, how to afford things. I'm not sure. But anyway, I don't have that collector's gene, although I admire greatly people who do and who, who put together, you know, extraordinary collections that's, that sometimes they make available for the public to see of really masterworks. And, you know, we're so lucky that um, we're all in a position to be able to, once lockdown is finished, that we can go and return to the museums, to return to the galleries, and really experience at first hand great art. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And as you're describing the desire for ownership, I'm thinking about that's where you and I really differ. I, I, I definitely have that desire for ownership. Uh, I, I am quite a collector. I, we have my partner and I have over 400 original pieces. So. Oh my it's quite a bit. Like we're at the point where uh, we have some in storage, which I never thought I'd be at. <laughs> um, but it's um, really for me when I walk into a room. So I, I kind of get what you're saying about that gene, and also like you know you're surrounded by this beautiful art, and you do kind of own it during these time periods when it's being exhibited. And for me, like I don't know if it's because I came into the art world more as an outsider, but I walk into a artist studio or a gallery and I'm like immediately thinking like which of these do I want to own which do I want to have and and not in a selfish way like I love the idea of presenting it publicly for other people to see but also just this feeling of I want this too so it's it's really neat to kind of you know hear the different perspective and think about how it applies to myself or maybe to our listeners or to their collectors and kind of understand it a little better um which is very cool um I wanted to actually bring something up because you mentioned, you know, collectors making their work avail- available publicly. And I never knew how to do that and, and how to reach out or what we, or be reached out to. Um, and I interviewed a gentleman like 
maybe a month ago on this podcast who runs a company called Artwork Archive, which allows you as either a collector, an institution, an artist, whatever, to archive your work online in this very easy, easily accessible format. And they have an option there where you can make it, you can link it to, um, to institutions that might be looking for art to show. And if you're maybe someone who's collected a few artists that are known and might, you know, qualify for a museum exhibition, it's a way that you can easily reference your collection. So it's not an ad. It's just something that popped in my mind, um, as a neat option. If you are a collector and you want to make your work available for showing in public. So now that sounds great. I hadn't heard of that. Sounds really interesting. Yeah, it was, it was pretty neat. I haven't signed up yet, but I'm kind of interested in it. So hopefully I will soon. Um, cool. So I want to, let's talk a little bit about, um, about fundraising for the arts. So you studied art, you went on to teach and fundraise and then also work at galleries. What are some of the things that you learned fundraising for the art? And is there anything that you want our listeners to know about fundraising or the necessity of fundraising in our world? Well, I think in the U.S., you know, um, philanthropy is, is, is something that is in a kind of way expected of everyone of a certain income strata. So you're all brought up with it in a way that we aren't in the UK, although it's much improved um, here, I'm delighted to say. I mean, fundraising is, um, I, I've always been very comfortable fundraising and I was an early pi- fundraising pioneer. <clears throat> um, so I suppose one of the things that fundraising allows you to do is meet the most incredibly interesting people because, of course, they are, in order to, to be giving money to charitable causes, they, you have to be, one has to be very, very successful. And successful people are very interested. So firstly, you're, you're going to be meeting a very interesting group of people um, and therefore can learn from them. And I think that's always, always, uh, always intriguing. And I always felt with a certain time it was, it was about creating this sense of, in a way, family. So people that would collect around the institution to support the work we did. And I also believe that, you know, you, you can be fundraising anywhere in the world and be successful because once you have two people who are together um, with a shared interest, you have a fundraising opportunity. So, I mean, I, I, although I used to work for the not-for-profit sector and I now work for the commercial sector, I mean, the, the whole idea of, you know, creating this group is absolutely fantastic. And um, I suppose the necessity of fundraising is about making it possible to do the work you feel it's important to do in, when I was during my fundraising days to communicate to the public, so to show works of art or architecture or design. Um, to the public, to, to work on education programs, to work on public programs. And the Serpentine had zero budget for our programs, so therefore we had to raise money for all of that. And I never found it to be a problem. It was a pressure. And sometimes, you know, we sail very close to the, to the, to the wind. Um, but nevertheless, I, I saw it as a constructive thing because it was about broadening audience and about communication. And I think 
for me, it's incredibly important that the widest possible public are engaged with art. And in that sense, it's a campaign. Yeah, I love that. And and just kind of underscored a little bit, you know, the necessity of fundraising being it's making it possible to do the work that you feel is important to do. And again, I agree with you, broadening the audience and engaging the widest possible audience for art is so important. And to the extent that fundraising offers that, it's an incredible tool to, you know, either do for yourself or be involved in in a larger in a larger format. Um, I do want to kind of tie this back, actually, because something you said I thought was really interesting is when you're involved in fundraising, you meet successful, interesting people and can learn from them. And that kind of ties back to our first question and talking about mentorship and being around people who do their job really well or, or are very interesting or whatever it may be. And, you know, I kind of asked, like, you know, well, how do you come across that? Well, this is a way that you could actually get yourself into those circles because fundraising by its very nature is in many ways reliant on people who are very successful and thus interesting. So this is a way that you might be able to find those very interesting people that do their job really well that you can be around. So I hope I'm not paraphrasing too much, but I think that's an interesting point. Yeah. Yeah, I think also um, for those of your listeners who are artists, you know, if they're making any kind of sort of printed, um, reproduced image, you know, you've got incredible specialists who do that. Um, you know, there are, there are so many different aspects to art that, that there are people who do, do it so, so wonderfully well that it's possible to now Google, of course, um, and see demonstrations um, from all over the world about a certain discipline or strand of making art. But also people who, you know, if you're, if you're doing a print workshop or, or you're interested in reproducing your work in any way or for photography, I mean, there are so many different elements of making art. Um, you know, how to, how to stretch a canvas. I'm sure all your, all your listeners are well beyond that stage. But if they're <laughs> not, going to the local art school and say, saying to the technician, please tell me how I stretch a canvas. Will you help me? Can I assist you in return for a day, half a day, an hour, whatever it happens to be? I mean, there's this whole idea of trading trading expertise in return for something back. I mean, the whole idea of fundraising is that you always, there's always a return. You're never asking somebody to give you something without giving something back. So as long as you can identify what you can give back, which at the very least is your time to help the person you're asking to help you, then, then you know, you, you've got the beginning of an interesting conversation. I love that. And I love that that's tying in fundraising with our topic of mentorship and just identifying what you can give back. And at the very least, you can give your time. And we're going to come right back. Julia is going to tell you more of what you want to know about the shifting art world and much more. But first, a quick message from our sponsors. New York City, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and yes, Miami. These are just a few of the places where you and your art can meet your next collector when you take the next step and exhibit with us at Superfine Art Fairs. For nearly six years, we've taken thousands of hours to develop the best art fair model for artists out there. Superfine Fairs have helped hundreds of artists just like you take control of their careers, build relationships with collectors, and create the art income and freedom that you deserve. For a limited time, we're offering you the chance to not only get a great discount on your booth, 
but also appear on this very podcast as a special guest, reaching thousands of artists, art influencers, collectors, and arts professionals every day. To find out how you can take advantage of this incredible opportunity, just visit www.superfine.world offer to learn more. Don't miss the chance to be a part of the top business artist community in the world. We're back. And so, Julia, you have extensive experience creatively developing galleries and exhibitions. Do you have a process for curation? That's the curation word again. Uh, do you have a process for curation? And has it always been something that you felt naturally inclined toward? Um, no, because I, I started as an artist. So, I mean, I, you know, I went to art school to learn how to make art, not how to learn how to be a curator. So um, the curatorial element of my work has always been to um, initially to, to fund my practice as an artist, and then it developed into a sort of whole strand of its own. I mean, I think in terms of uh, my work as a curator, it's always important to have two things in mind. One is, what is the purpose of the exhibition? So the elevator pitch. What you're bringing either an artist's work together or a number of artists' work, work together. Why? What is the purpose of doing that? Um, why is it important to do that? Because if you can identify why it's important, then you also identify to a degree your public. Um, and then it is um, who is your public? Identifying who you're, who you're doing the show for. Is it your peers in the art world? Is it for the, your peers in the art world and the wider public? Is it for you know, fellow students? Is it for your family or friends? But it's really important to articulate um, who will be viewing what you're, what you're putting together because that then will inform not only how you communicate um, what you're doing, but also the contents of the show or the project. Uh, and I think that's really, really important. So I think clarity of thinking is absolutely key. And if you don't know, if one doesn't know, which is very often the case when you start something, I'm given, to a degree, a homework assignment. So today, I might say to me, oh, Gina, I'd, I'd really like to do a show with, of the work of John Cage. Um, in this particular instance, uh, who, as you know, quite apart from being one of the greatest composers know ever, um, also was um, did, was a wonderful artist. And there were there are always limitations when you do a project. I'm saying project because it might be a show, it might be installation, it might be a performance, or something else. Um, there are always limitations. They might be budgetary limitations. They might be limitations of time, resources, all of the above, and other things that I haven't said. So it's really important to know what the limitations are because that gives you the freedom to turn the limitations to advantage and work with them so you it informs your choices about what you do. So, for example, in the cage situation, I had very little time and also very little resources because there wasn't a big transportation, a budget for transportation. Um, uh, the loans were, had to come from only two places. And also the display was really challenging because these works are unbelievably fine and beautiful. And when you put them on the wall, 
in certain conditions, they kind of disappear. So I came up with the idea of putting them on the table and just tilting them slightly. So you look down on them. And that relationship of the body to the object themselves by looking down on the table, I, I felt, worked very, very well. So, I mean, there are all sorts of things like that. And also um, curating uh, projects is a, a creative process. And uh, I think that's always worth remembering. Yeah, I could not agree more. And I think this is a really, really important topic for the artists listening out there who might be putting on your own exhibition or working with a gallery or in many cases with our fair where the artists are exhibiting their own work. We really, really emphasize the curatorial process. And I love the idea of kind of starting with this elevator pitch, right? The, the what are you doing? What is the purpose of the exhibition? Even if it's a 12-foot wall at an art fair, what is your purpose? What are you trying to do? And why is it important to do that? And I like that, you know, when you answer that why question, you can identify your public and really kind of figure out who is your public. Is it your peers, fellow artists? Is it students? Is it your family? Is it collectors? What level of collectors? And that's something we really emphasize at, at Superfine is like, you know, are you shooting for the multimillionaire collector with, you know, hundreds of works already? Or are you shooting for maybe the young couple who just bought a home and are looking for a wonderful piece and an artist to support? So really knowing who it is, to me, is really, really central. And I like kind of framing it in that what, why, and who criteria. And then ultimately, it's a creative process. I believe that if you've answered those questions first, as you mentioned, that you can then you know, let the creativity flow from there, if that's fair to say. <laughs> yes, it is. I mean, sharpness of thinking is always key, I think, in anything that one does. And if the sharpness of thinking isn't there from the outset, which it often isn't, as one sort of feels one's way towards the answers, um, then it, talk to talk to your your colleagues, or if they're not available for whatever reason, talk to your family or talk to your friends, perhaps not in the art world, and and kind of find answers before you... Because if, if, if you're clear about your starting point, it doesn't mean to say at the end of the project you'll, you'll, you'll be asking the same things or answering the same things as you did at the beginning. However, it's really important to be clear because clarity really informs choice. And, you know, the, the right choice or not the right choice, or the, the choice which is, you know, sharp and clear is incredibly important and will will inform how how successful the project is. Yeah, I love that. Clarity informs choice and sharpness of thinking is key. I couldn't agree more. And I think often sometimes we look at, you know, what appears to be slapdash or artists or creators who shoot from the hip. But really what you find, whether you're talking about, you know, the writer Hunter S. Thompson or Quentin Tarantino or whatever it may be, is that they had a very strong central idea and everything was very clear. And then the creative decisions might happen on the page or on set. But the idea is usually very, very clear. So I completely agree with you, starting with that point of clarity, whether you're creating your own booth or even creating a new artwork or series and then letting the creativity flow from there. I, I agree that that's a, a good way to go about it. Um, so we're wrapping up here. I want to get to kind of our last question uh, for you, Julio. And 
that is, what are some of the, the big changes that you see happening in the art world? And most importantly, how can artists listening today participate in those changes in the art world? Keeping their eyes and ears open, I think, is a key thing. Um, going to shows, looking at what their peers are doing. Um, being open to developments as they emerge. Um, and being really aware and interested in the world around them um, from the perspective of the art world as it sort of, as it, as it changes, um, particularly after coming out of lockdown, but not only that, you know, um, the digital is really much more in evidence than it was two years ago, certainly. And of course, um, NFTs are a new element in the market and the in the on the market or in the marketplace these are not to be this is i mean i i suppose my one piece of advice is not to ignore or dismiss anything you might whatever comes to prominence may not have a long life but quite apart from anything else it's important to be informed and things that feel very sort of um i don't know out there or even impossible as a concept when they first emerge, uh, some of those things will have a long, long life and become part of our vocabulary, part of our world that we, we, we inhabit. So it's really important to be open about all those things and not to reject things because they're either new or perplexing or maybe from the outset, you know, really uncomfortable. So everyone, I love this. Keep your eyes and ears open, go to shows, see what your peers are doing, be open to new developments and be aware and interested in the world around you. And I love that you said not to ignore or dismiss anything and to be open because I've caught myself in that trap before. I interviewed an artist last week who has basically built a career in the past 18 months using the platform TikTok. And yeah. If you asked me a year and a half ago what TikTok was going to do for the art world or for an artist, I would have laughed. And so, I mean, even if you asked me a month ago, I didn't pay any mind or think of it as of any value. And this gentleman has built a successful career and he's, you know, reached a very wide audience, millions of people through this platform. And that doesn't mean it's right for everyone. It doesn't mean anything is right for everyone. But you know, being open and not being cynical about these new developments. I completely agree with you, Julia. That's something that even I could work on and everyone could work on. So, Yes. Note to self, always. Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, Julia, this has been an amazing conversation. We just gave some amazing tips for artists. We have one more final word of advice for our artist listeners out there who just want to take that next step in elevating their career and moving forward. The studio, look inwards, not outwards. Because the thing is that if, you know, no amount of marketing or digital campaigning or communicating or engaging substitutes for being in the studio, it just doesn't. And uh, the focus is making art in the most rigorous and disciplined way possible. By that I mean you know, really having a studio, when I say studio practice, an art practice, whatever that practice is, that is the beginning, the middle and the end of the, your success as an artist. And everything else is everything else. 
you know, no amount of networking with collectors, with museum people, anybody on this planet is going to substitute for being in the studio and for your work evolving and allowing, giving it the time to do that without trying to control the outcome or trying to predict it in any way. So that really, for me, is the key, key, key thing. And also, if any of your listeners are in a position where they, you know, they're very social, they, they engage with a lot of people, they're out there, they're, you know, just all those, all that time of kind of every time you have a conversation with somebody when you're not in the studio, that all erodes the, the actual practice of making. Some people can do it. You know, there's no question that they can. But it's a very difficult thing to pull off, and particularly perhaps artists at the beginning of their careers when they want to know the secret of how did X get to Y because they were really diligent about being in the studio, making art, continuing to make art, being very rigorous about the process. That's how it works, and nothing can substitute for that. I love that. Look inwards, not outwards. Focus on making your art because your studio practice is the beginning, middle, and end of your art practice. Make art and be rigorous about it because nothing can substitute for it. I love it. Thank you, Julia. To all of you artists listening out there, Julia has been here with us today sharing her amazing perspective with you. You're going to want to go back and take notes on this episode, which you can do on our website at www.superfine.world. To connect with Julia, you can follow her on Instagram at julia.paytonjones and visit www.ropac.net. That'll be in the show notes as well. As always, remember that we are Super Fine Art Fair on Instagram, and we always appreciate a share, a story, a post, whenever you're listening to, benefiting from, enjoying the artist business plan. I know a lot of you do that in your studio because I've seen it on the stories, and we appreciate that. And once again, we also appreciate if you take just a moment of your time and write us a quick review on Apple Podcasts, or at least give us that five-star rating if you think we deserve it. Those ratings and reviews are really critical in helping other artists find us. As always, I'd like to wrap up the class by sharing a quick quote with you all. This one is a good one. We all know that art is not the truth. Art is a lie that makes us realize the truth, at least the truth that is given us to understand. The artist must know the manner whereby to convince others of the truthfulness of his lies. If he only shows in his work that he has searched and researched for the way to put over lies, he would never accomplish anything. It's Pablo Picasso. Julia, it has been such a pleasure having you with us today. Thank you for joining us and for sharing your perspective with our listeners. For that, we are so grateful to you. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, the pleasure was mine. Everybody else, have an awesome rest of your day. Remember to stay on top of your artist business plan, get out there and make it happen. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Artist Business Plan, a weekly business podcast for artist entrepreneurs brought to you by Superfine Art Fair. Hosted by Superfine CEO Alex Mito and co-founder slash professional artist James Milley, join us and leaders in the art, marketing, and business arenas each week for tips, tricks, and value bombs designed to help you thrive and sell more art. For more information on applying to Superfine Art Fair, as well as recordings of this and all of our past podcasts, just visit www.superfine.world. We love to hear what you have to say, so follow us on Instagram at superfineartfair and shoot us a message to let us know you're listening. Looking for a more personal connection or want to exhibit at an upcoming fair? Shoot us an email at artistsmakingmoney at superfine.world and we'll get right back to you. That's artistsmakingmoney at superfine.world.